let's start what we have come into the room to do. <laughs> right on. Here goes. One, two, three. Western market, for some reason, the interest that they have for our music is quite different from what I have. You know, they're, they're into this funky stuff and all that stuff. That's all the demand we get. And I'm more into something much more deeper and more indigenous and more has more depth. Kunle Tejosho, owner of the Jazz Hall, a vinyl record store in Lagos, is trying to make sense of Western tastes for Nigerian music. It all started with Fela and Afrobeat, and then people, I think extended into like Afro-funk, things that they could identify with, the strands of Western American funk, so they could identify with it. But you have to understand that this stuff was tapping into a deeper root. Kunle has collected vinyl for years, but he recently started selling records alongside CDs and books in his shop. Many of his clients are visiting foreigners or Nigerians who have lived abroad and now returned with a taste for vintage Nigerian sounds. Every part of Nigeria has its own strand, has, has its own strand of high life, has its own strand of this. There are all kinds of rhythms. So when you're searching for records, you're going to see all kinds of covers and all kinds of sounds, which is what made people like Fela, you could just tap into all kinds of sounds and rhythms and just conjure magic. That's for sure. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. I remember back in the day, we used to listen to all the latest African hits on vinyl records. But those days are long gone, at least on the African continent. However, the market for African vinyl just keeps growing outside the continent. Original records sell for hundreds, even thousands of dollars online. And in recent years, many of these rare records have made it back onto vinyl, repressed in full or reissued in thematic compilations with names like Doing It in Lagos, Boogie Pop and Disco in 80s Nigeria, or Space Echo, 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 the mystery behind the cosmic sound of Cabo Verde finally revealed, or Love's a Real Thing, the funky, fuzzy sounds of West Africa. So, who's behind these reissues of vintage African music? What music makes it onto wax these days and what is left behind? And who's buying and listening to these records? And who's making money from all this? We'll get into all that and more on today's program, Reissued African Vinyl in the 21st Century. Christine was Fela Kuti's manager from 1983 until his death in 1997 and currently manages Fela's enormous musical catalogue through Knitting Factory Records. 
Ricky spoke with us on the phone from his home in London. You know, there was a promotion. He said, well, why don't we do a box set, a vinyl box set? Oh, that's a good idea. Why don't we do two? No, I'll tell you what, let's do four. <laughs> so we did four box sets. Of course, you know, with six albums in each. We made 5,000 of each box. And people would leave my house with these box sets clutched to their chest. <laughs> like we'd given them diamonds. And we sold the damn lot, man. Everything went. So who benefits when someone buys a reissued fella record? Oh, the family owns everything. There's um, the fella and the Galapakuti estate. We license the catalog from the estate. While Fela's music may be in good hands, allegations of bootlegging, underpaying, and other licensing controversies are common in the African vinyl reissue market, especially since many of the artists are elderly, living in remote places, or deceased. Most record labels that reissue African music are based in Western Europe and the United States, and most are run by people with no African ancestry or cultural connection to the music. In fact, the market for this music is almost exclusively outside the African continent. Yeah, my name is Quinton Scott. Um, I founded Strut Records back in 1999 as uh, an independent label. This now um, goes through K7 Records in Berlin. Uh, I'm based in London. Strut Records has become one of the most widely recognized reissue labels alongside other powerhouses such as Soundway Records and Analog Africa and they've come a long way. Some of the compilations were very naive back then, you know, we, we had one called Africa Funk and one called Club Africa and it was just really a hodgepodge of all kinds of, uh, you know, African records that had a bit of fun to them really from all over the place. Quinton came from a background in dance music and he'd noticed a growing interest in African music among DJs in the rare groove scene. It was just after the death of Fela Kuti and people like Masters at Work and Kerry Chandler, Jerome Sydenham were all sort of making house records using Afrobeat. So we just thought, let's try some compilations to bring African music to DJs, sort of to go for the African rare groove side of things and uh, just see if that would work for that market. Strut wasn't the only label reissuing African vinyl in Europe at the time, but they had a different focus for a different market. Yeah, I think it was more for the DJ side. I think that there were obviously African reissue labels around. I mean, Stearns, people like that were, Earthworks were, were doing a fine job in making great African music available, but it was very much for the, what they call the world music market, which is a horrible term, but that's uh, known as. I just don't think there was the realization with a lot of labels how much material was over, was in, in the African archives um, to reissue. But, um, you know, there, there was a time where we worked with a collector called Duncan Brooker and still work with him a lot here in the UK. And he had been to Africa a lot during the 90s, picking up these records that fused traditional styles with funk and jazz. And the more he was playing, the more I kind of realized that, well, there's, there's a lot here. Duncan Brooker has been described as the man who saved African funk by The Guardian, a grand title with colonial overtones. In 2001, he told The Guardian, if I believed that Africa had produced a lot more original music than Fela Kuti, I now had the evidence. Hundreds of albums and singles of material unheard in the West. 
In many ways, Brugger's Eurocentric perspective and musical preferences set the tone for African vinyl reissues for years to come. Get out, fight, trouble in the streets. Watch out, right, Jambai's out to stay. You're almost tailoring these albums for the Western market because I think when you go to African countries, you realize that the taste in music, you know, the, the records that were big even back in the day then were are very different. There's a sort of sensibility towards sort of the, the, the unusual funk and soul and jazz fusions that, that were being made back then, which works very, very well over here. But, uh, you know, there were hits back in, in Nigeria in the 70s that haven't made it onto compilations either because they're just slightly more pop or just haven't got quite the right feeling for the that would work for the Western market. Western record collectors and DJs bring their taste in music with them as they choose which vintage African records to reissue for Western markets. That's Julien Lebrun, DJ and co-founder of Hot Casa Records. We spoke with him from his home in Paris. The label has focused on funk and soul from West Africa. Julien says, funk and soul is in our DNA. Beaucoup de gens qui nous critiquent en disant ce n'est pas la musique ivoirienne ou ce n'est pas la musique togolaise, etc. Julien says many people criticize us, saying this isn't actually Togolese music. But this music existed, so there's no judgment or invention on our part. It's just our bias that we decided to highlight the Afro-funk or Afro-soul scene that was there in the 70s. Julien mentions recent blog posts critiquing what he calls a white vision of African music. For example, DJ and producer Boima Tucker, who we'll hear from later, made the bold statement in 2010 that the current mad dash for rare African vinyl could be analogous to Europe's 19th century scramble for Africa. While Julien insists that these record labels aren't necessarily rewriting history, but rather choosing to focus on smaller historical scenes, Boima worries that the narrow focus of DJs and label owners excludes entire musical genres from the reissue project, not to mention African perspectives on the music. So, where do Africans and African perspectives fit into this African vinyl reissue industry. Yeah, hi, my name is Uchenai Kone. I am a, a writer and historian of Nigerian music, and I also run the Comb and Razor Sound a record label. Uchenai grew up in Nigeria and is now based in Boston. 
He has curated some of the most groundbreaking Nigerian reissue compilations, including Brand New Wayo, Funk, Fast Times, and Nigerian Boogie Badness. Wake Up You, The Rise and Fall of Nigerian Rock, and the 2013 anthology, Who Is William Onyabor? I did know him, and I was involved in uh, the revival of his work in recent years. I think it's fair to say that I initiated that, actually. It was in 2009 that I came up with the idea of starting a record label, and I knew that one of the first releases that I was going to put out was going to be a compilation of William Onyabo's work. So I got in touch with him. He was keen on doing it. So I went to Nigeria, and uh, I went to sort out the deal with him. That compilation eventually came out on the Luakabop record label. And when Wonyabor passed away in January 2017, his music was celebrated across the world, thanks in part to Ochina's work. If you find yourselves in trouble, let come and dance your troubles away. I say How did you get into collecting vinyl and, you know, and music from the 80s, Nigerian boogie funk, etc.? Mainly what led me to it was a sense of nostalgia, I guess. I, I had very clear memories of a lot of this music. And at the time that it started becoming popular amongst DJs and record collectors in the West, it seemed to reawaken something in me. You know, it sort of took me back to my childhood because this is the stuff that I used to listen to on my way to school and whatnot. I could bring a certain context that other people didn't have. You know, people were discovering these records and nobody knew anything about them or the world from which they emerged. And, you know, that world was the world in which I grew up. So. What I was always trying to do was to flesh out the story of the records, to make people understand um, the environment and the context uh, that, that, that created them. The audience for the reissues is people in the West. And... Um, <laughs> You see, the t there's also an issue of taste. The music that is of value to people in Nigeria is not necessarily the same as those in the West. Afro music enthusiasts in the West want music that is funky. Anything that's not funky to them is actually garbage. But believe it or not, those non-funky records were the sides that people in Nigeria loved. So. When I was going in to start a label, uh, I, I really wanted to represent the Nigerian point of view and put out the music that Nigerians really valued. But I realized that, you know, most of my audience is in the West and I've got to cater to them. I tried to find a balance with it by not, you know, going doing the obvious thing and just throwing it on with funk, 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 Afrobeat. Um, I tried to find some some tunes that had different flavors to them. And um, some of the releases that I, I'm putting out also uh, reflect that. Yeah. 
That was Mwa Amambo from Mary Afi Oshua off of Uchina's compilation, Calabar Itu Road. Although his main audiences have shown a strong preference for funk, Uchina has also noticed that Western tastes for Nigerian music change and evolve. People were not really into disco, Afro-disco. Afro-disco and boogie was still viewed as kind of corny. Like what people felt was valuable was the hard Afro-funk and maybe some Afro-rock. But, you know, through DJing, I found that people just liked disco. You know, it's easier to dance to. And that's why I put out Brand New Wild. That's the sound of Mixed Grill with their song Brand New Wayo, which was featured on Uchina's compilation of the same name. That one showcases the disco and boogie sounds of late 70s and early 80s Nigeria. Yeah, that's the main thing now. A lot of the disco stuff and boogie stuff is um, much more in demand than some of the heavy uh, Afro-punk stuff. So, with all the clamor for Nigerian boogie in the West, is there a market for this music in Nigeria? No, not really. Um, no. In part, it's that records are quite expensive by average Nigerian standards. But also... In Nigeria, we don't really have a nostalgia culture for the most part. You know, we don't have a, I love the 80s and all that stuff like that. You know, we don't really have a culture that looks back in that way. Most times, when something goes out of fashion, everybody forgets it and they keep on moving on to the next thing. What we do is we issue, you know, lost musical gems. That's Nigerian record collector Temitope Kogbe, who recently launched a new Lagos-based label with veteran Nigerian producer Odion Iruoji. I'm the only label doing reissuing from Nigeria, which is weird, you know, because there's a lot of Nigerian music being reissued. The new label, Odion Livingston, is under the wings of the more established UK-based label Strut, whose founder, Quinton, we heard from earlier. Producer Morgan Greenstreet met up with Timmy at his home in Lagos. Oh, my market is entirely, it's US, Europe, and um, the boogie, Nigerian boogie stuff, is very big in France. Yeah, I mean, who listens to this music? Basically, the DJs who only want exclusives, so they, they were the ones buying that West African music. And that's why West African music, especially the boogie records, were going for thousands of dollars, you know, because they wanted this record that they would play and people would go, oh my God, you know, and they couldn't find. Then other people who were like, you know, into the DJ culture thing, knew about the records but couldn't afford them. So they were begging us to reissue that. They were like, please reissue this album. Demi Kogbe got into collecting records when he was living in London, but he tried to leave it all behind when he moved back to Nigeria. I got dragged into it, <laughs> you know, you know how it is. And um, everything happened very fast. I met 
good diggers and they just kept bringing me the, you know, what people said you never find this record anymore, you know. It's, uh, we haven't seen it in 20 years, you know. I kept finding those kind of records and I started getting attention from people outside and then, you know, I started selling stuff to them. Because I found a box of Olivia Kimmich's Friday Night. Mint, sealed, most of them. And um, the least I sold it for was hundreds of dollars each. It was ridiculous, you know? And uh, come on, man. I'm, I'm, I'm all out for DJs having that. But it's music I believe should meet an audience. So Temi sought out Livy Ekemezier, but the artist was not interested at first. He couldn't understand. He thought I was a kidnapper. Yeah, because he was like, what are you talking about? Nobody knows that record, you know? He's like, no, you know, so what are you talking about? What, are you, what do you want? You know? <laughs> so he didn't believe that you wanted to pay him? No, he didn't. It, you know, it took months. But he eventually agreed. And we are now hearing Friday Night, as reissued by Odeon Livingstone. Hey, visit our website, afropop.org, for exclusive mixes and features and a full playlist of all the excellent music heard on today's program. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. While diggers and reissuers are making money selling rare original LPs and reissues, what about the artists who made the music? What are their perspectives on the new vinyl market? Producer Morgan Greenstreet brings us a story of one such artist. All right, my name is Steve Black. Well, I've been in music since 1966, and I'm still in music. I am one of the pillars of Nigerian funk music. Steve welcomed me into his home in Moe, Ogun State, Nigeria, about an hour outside Lagos. He's a drummer, singer, and band leader who took part in many, many recordings as a sideman and also recorded two heavy funk albums under his own name, Village Boogie and Happy Birthday to You. In fact, Steve penned the song Brand New Wayo, which we heard earlier. We are vindicated because when people say our music is not commercial, that's what they told us way back then. This music is the one selling now in Europe. I mean, we have indicated our music is commercial. Our music is good. We have an audience somewhere willing to listen to our kind of music. Why do you think they like it? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's why we possibly don't have our records anymore because it stayed too long on the shelf, dust covered. We don't even have vinyl record players here in the country anymore. So we threw it away. So, but now it's like, ah, so you mean that my record can still be heard by somebody and, you know, so. (laughs) 
While Steve was thrilled that his music had found a new audience, he was concerned that he was not being properly compensated for his work. I saw my album was selling for 820 pounds, 900 pounds on eBay. I was like, wow, that's a lot of money. And I couldn't know how to get in touch with eBay. First, I thought, ah, these people were exploiting my works without even telling me. And I got to discover that, oh, no, they don't. They just have one or two copies they want to sell. Somewhere along the line on Facebook one day, somebody called Marcus Press, sent me a message. He was asking if I was Steve Black, the owner of Village Boogie. I said, yes. Then he told me that he would like to reissue my Village Boogie if I will allow him. I said, okay, yeah, I will allow you, but make me an offer. They made me an offer, and I felt it was cool by me. He actually offered me two dollars and fifty cents on an album. So I said, okay, that's fine. And I told Marcos, I said, well, you're going to give me this royalty, but I want a lump sum. And he said, okay, before we do anything, you pay for first thousand copies, and that translated to two thousand five hundred dollars. And he sent me the money even before reissuing. So I think that was kind of deal that I would like to do. So Steve Black signed a deal with Presh Media Group, a small Austrian label previously unknown in the industry. And he began acting as the label's intermediary in Nigeria, signing dozens of artists for full album reissues with a $200 commission on every record. But things did not stay cool for long. In November of 2016, I was scrolling through my Facebook feed when something caught my attention. A lengthy post from Frank Gossner, the German DJ who ran the Voodoo Funk label and blog until recently. In the thread, which had hundreds of comments and reactions before he deleted it, Frank denounced PMG's business practices in Nigeria and accused founder Marcus Presch of being a neo-Nazi, based on Presch's provocative industrial music project, Rostov Dachau. On this track, you hear Marcus intoning a poem by Nazi writer Kurt Eggers. Pretty creepy. When I met Steve Black in Nigeria, he passionately defended his boss. You can see from this fence, to the end. So it's a massive, you know, we have good property here. Definitely. You know. It's pretty big. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to name this street. I'm going to register it with the local government. We're going to be calling it Marcos Presh Street. Yeah. <laughs> to immortalize his name. This land yeah, we're this, looking yeah, at now huge. is Marcos Presh um, proposed school site. Okay. Marcos sent money to pay for this land for school business, for the less privileged in a Nigerian society. He's taking this money out of the uh, profit he's making from PMG Records in selling Nigerian artists' old funk music. I've never seen any reissue guy that has been releasing Nigerian artists that has done anything close to this. And if it wasn't for Guzna's negative uh, publicity, we will have started working on this project. One, two, one, two, three. Whatever his past is, is his own business. 
If we check, everybody has a past. You had your past, I have the past. He had it. Guzna has his past. So, one, I think Guzna was wrong there because he had his past. Now, two, I even see that this whole thing generated from Uchenna because I took my music from Uchenna to Marcos. Yeah, because Uchenna couldn't meet up my bill. I signed a deal with him in 2010, and he told me he was going to use one song. But at the end of the day, I found him using the whole album. Yeah, it's a lie. It's a lie. Listen, um, I licensed one song from Steve Black. Coleman Razor has released four records at this point. You can look at them all. Where have I released any music from Steve Black except for one song? And the royalties he received from that one song are more than the amount that PMG pays to buy the rights for a record altogether. While Frank Gossner declined our request for an interview, Uchenna shared the research he had been doing into the new label, asking artists he knew personally about the terms of their contracts. And upon looking at them, I felt that these contracts were just ridiculous. They were highly exploitative. They they seemed almost criminal to me, to be honest. I took them to a, a, a lawyer who said that these uh, contracts were completely ridiculous. The language was highly ambiguous and seemingly deceptive. But um, even more troublesome to me was the fact that the amount for which they are buying the complete perpetual rights for this work was so ridiculously low. The amount that they were paying to buy an album forever was less than the amount that I would typically pay to license a record for five years. In fact, it was Steve who had proposed the terms and amounts of the contracts to Marcus, suggesting that PMG buy rather than license the rights to albums. Those artists involved are very broke because they're old people. So I felt that these people cannot be waiting for royalties. Why don't we buy rights from them and pay them off? And I felt that, well, for a musician in this country, if you have $2,000, it's good money. And if you have that $2,000, you don't have it in bits and pieces, but you have it in a lump sum. I think it's good money. So I told him we have to pay $2,000. Marcus agreed, but with the caveat that some records are less in demand in the market. So they settled on a range. According to Uchenna, here's where PMG's business practices become problematic. First of all, they're not given a chunk of money. It would be nice if they got what they were promised paid in the lump sum. You know, you have people who took a year to get paid, you know, getting paid in bits and pieces, which is unconscionable, I think. I mean, it's unconscionable for an advance. If it's royalties, obviously that makes sense. But an advance is meant to be paid in advance. What what the average label does through a license is basically borrow the intellectual property. You make an agreement, you say, I'm going to use this intellectual property for a set number of years or a set number of records. You make your 3,000 records or whatever, you sell them, and the artist gets his intellectual property back. What PMG is doing is taking this intellectual property, 
and holding on to it forever. The children of the artists are starving and Marcus Precious children and grandchildren will eat off this music forever. That's the reason I said that it's true colonialism and it's, I, I think it's criminal. I mean, technically it's legal, but it's criminal, morally. I'd been calling Austria for a few weeks, trying to reach Marcus Presch. Die Person kann ihren Anruf derzeit nicht entgegennehmen. Bitte hinterlassen Sie eine Nachricht oder versuchen Sie es später noch einmal. Sie können... Eventually, I got him on the line. Hi, Morgan. Hi, good morning, Marcus. Yeah, uh, okay, let me clear one thing in the beginning, officially and forever. I am not and never was and never will be a Nazi. Uh, why does PMG buy the rights to records rather than doing a limited license like most reissue labels do? Yeah, we are doing both. Either licensing or buying the rights. Uh, if, an, if an artist is still active or is um, still behind his music, I won't buy any rights from him because this is his property and it's just in the case that somebody is already dead and uh, and. Uh, or or um, or has no no more interest in his music at all and doesn't doesn't take care about it anymore at all um, then we are buying i don't want to buy rights so that i can press endless copies without paying anything anymore i want to buy the rights to just to let's say like this prevent it from bootleggers so but this is actually my intention just to keep these recordings uh, for the future, just to save them. I asked Marcus about the economics of the label. Yeah, the record's selling quite well um, because this music was not available for so many years nowhere at all. But I have some good deals with my factory. I can pay them later. And I have deals with the, with the artists that I down pay them half of the amount when we sign the contract and the other half after six months. Temi Kogbe of Odeon Livingston was also critical of PMG's business practices in Nigeria. There's a lot about what PMG does that I'm not very comfortable with. If some guy who put out a record 20, 30 years ago is being offered some amount, which in his currency seems like a lot of money, but you know, according to international you know, best practices, that that is not that is not anything close to what you should be offered him. You know, do you take advantage of the fact that he's ready to accept less? Is that negotiation? Is that free market? Is that capitalism? I don't know, man. I can't understand how people who love the music, you know, act like they don't care about the artists who made the music that they love. 
I asked Marcus how he would respond to critics of PMG's business practices. Yeah, I would say to, to these people, just listen to the artists and, and uh, talk with them what they are saying about us. I mean, it's about their music. The most of them are very poor. And there are three guys who are having a stroke and they need expensive medicine. And all of them are very happy. And they said they've never been paid for their music. And now for the first time in the life of the 40 years, they get paid. Mm-hmm. And they get quite well paid. People that don't like the work that Marcos is doing are those that are hoarding the original copies and they think they can sell one copy for XYZ amount, whereas Marcos will come and sell it for low price. They think that Marcos is cutting their deal. So that's why they don't like it. When they sell a record for $800, they take the $800. What about we that own the work? But when Marcos reproduces it, reissue it, and put it in the market, we here gets money. True. You see my truck there? Yeah, you see this house? This is part of what I get from Marcos. All these artists here, somebody with 500,000 naira in his back pocket today in Nigeria right now in this recession, he's a big guy. He has good money. He can buy a piece of land if he wants. He can change his car if he wants. can pay his children's school fees if he wants. Of course, I see there are reasons for certain people to be not happy with what we are doing. But the question what I'm asking myself is why they didn't do it over the last 10 years. Uh, they had the same possibilities than me. I mean, Steve Black, I, I found him in five minutes over Facebook. So nobody can blame that I'm doing now something that was simply lying on the streets and just nobody did it. There are many more facets to all this. But let me just say, ever since I read Frank Gossner's post, I've been obsessed with the PMG story. From Steve Black's accusations of unfair payment structures and bootlegging, to Chenna's judgment of PMG's contracts and intentions, to Marcus's narrative of saving the music, and even the school he's building for the underprivileged children of Nigeria, a country he's never visited. This story highlights so many of the colonial-style power dynamics that still echo in this industry. Thanks, Morgan. Wow, that's a lot to take in. Visit afrobob.org to read more from our producers and check out Uchena's writings on his blog, Comb and Razor. While many reissue labels have focused on funky sounds from West Africa, there is a slightly different story to be told further south. There were a lot of South African jazz recordings, specifically from the 70s, which um, had gotten out of print, and the only way in which you could get hold of them was to either pay very high prices on uh, eBay or Discogs. Uh, in order to get hold of those original recordings. Matt Temple is the founder of Matsuli Music, a record label exclusively focused on the South African jazz and popular music that he grew up with in KwaZulu-Natal. Given the fact that there was a new audience listening to the stuff that Stretch and Analog Africa was starting to put out, it seemed as though there was a, a, an opportunity for a label that could focus on South African jazz and popular music from the 70s. 
And so I started the lab in 2010, and the first issue we did was Dick Causer's Chapita album. Beyond obvious musical differences, one of the particularities of reissuing South African music is the growing vinyl market there, which is unique on the African continent. A lot of the albums that we've reissued, just because of their scarcity, uh, are highly regarded in South Africa and people want them, which is why 15 to 20% of our sales are in South Africa. I can't for a moment imagine that Soundway or Strut are selling 20% of their Nigerian compilations in Nigeria. I could be wrong, I could be wrong, but in that sense, Matsuli music is slightly different. Our most successful release has been the Batsumi album, which was the second uh, release we put out, and we've repressed that a number of times. Not only are collectors buying these records, but young musicians and bands are hearing them and incorporating a lot of these classic South African sounds into their own work. You know, for example, a group uh, that are on another reissue label called Nyami, Nyami Sounds, and they call themselves uh, BCUC. And if you listen to their sound, it's very much in the same vein as that Batsumi album. So, in a way, there's a cross-pollination between times and which has kind of fed off the reissues that we've done. So, that's very encouraging to see. And then these cats came through. They called themselves BCUC. They came with a brand new style and a brand new swag. From the woods, y'all. Producer Alejandro Vanzant Escobar met with Charles Uda, co-founder of the Nyami Nyami record label, which released BCUC's album, Our Truth, last year. They spoke at Charles' home in Paris. Because in Africa, on a often... En ce moment, à côté très, c'est la musique de club qu'on entend beaucoup. Charles explained how, as in Nigeria, South Africa's electronic music has been having a global impact in recent years. But with Nyami Nyami, they are also trying to highlight a different facet of the musical scene in Johannesburg. As you can hear, BCUC's sound hints at the spiritual jazz that Matsuli puts out and has an organic and dynamic intensity a unique and compelling sound. But how does having their music released on French label affect their reach at home and abroad? Je pense que la sortie de l'album pour eux, alors économiquement, on est proche du zéro. Charles says 
the economic benefit from the record sales is close to zero. But with their album release, BCUC has received media attention in France and other European countries, leading to many European tour dates. Meanwhile, in South Africa, Charles sees this album release, even if it's on a small level, as increasing the local profile of the band, giving them a certain prestige and authority. A certain credibility, a certain authority. reissue market, one label seems to stand out with its relatively contemporary catalog. Yeah, Brian Shimkovitz, uh, based in Los Angeles, doing awesome tapes from Africa, started out as a blog in 2006, now it's a record label, also a DJ project. I travel around DJing tapes, talking about stuff, and... Uh, tracking down my favorite artists and helping put out their records. When he first traveled to West Africa in 2002, Brian started buying cassette tapes at local music shops. He began to upload these to his blog, Awesome Tapes from Africa. When I started the blog, it was just to make an immediate way for some music nerds and other curious people, I guess, to hear what music sounds like in Africa, the kind of stuff that you would hear walking down the street or going to a club or hanging out with friends, not recordings made by Western labels or in studios in Europe or America. The stuff that's popular out there, very localized, that doesn't get distributed over here very much. A lot of people noticed that Awesome Tapes from Africa was focusing on this period in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s that a lot of the other African music publications in the Western world hadn't focused on that include a lot of drum machines and a lot of keyboards and things that world music listeners in the West typically didn't go for so much. As interest in his blog grew, Brian decided to launch a record label and to officially reissue some of his favorite recordings, on tape and on vinyl. I have a lot of fun searching for my favorite artists and trying to talk them into letting me reissue their music. And a lot of the artists have benefited, you know, financially, obviously, but also just in terms of building newer audiences. these new audiences. We are hearing Obasima by Ghanaian artist Atakak. This record had quite an effect when it was reissued by Awesome Tapes from Africa in 2013. And now Atakak has a new band and is touring Europe. 
But what about his listeners in Ghana? What's interesting about him is that he may be the most well-known Ghanaian musician if you want to look at the number of countries and the number of people that have seen him play and heard him play and know who he is. However, he was never famous in Ghana. He still isn't famous in Ghana. And uh, he's never even played a show in Ghana. He didn't even become a musician until he left Ghana and moved to Germany in the 80s. Brian has also released new recordings, albums from SK Kakraba, a master Gilles player from Ghana, who is now based in Los Angeles, and from Malian folk singer Awapulo. While it's too soon to tell what effect these releases will have on their careers, on the other hand, master Ethiopian musician Hailu Merjia's story is heartening. think that what I'm doing has like a massive effect on each and every artist's home reputation. But then if you look at someone like Hailu Mergia, who is always remembered, but not really discussed or not really like on the tip of every person's tongue in the last 30 years of Ethiopians, now that he's had a successful renaissance of his career and been touring so much, when he goes back to Ethiopia, he's doing big press and people are really talking about him again. And it's been really cool to see so many Ethiopians in all the different places where he plays around the world coming out for his shows and showing him tons of love and, and not just older folks, younger folks too. In recent years, we've seen more vinyl reissue labels taking chances on projects that go beyond reissues. For example, Soundway releases music from new bands like Ibibio Sound Machine and Onda Tropica, while Strut has been releasing new music from veteran artists, including Ghanaian highlife legends Pat Thomas and Ibo Taylor. Most recently, they are backing a unique transgenerational collaboration. I feel like the infrastructure of the Diggers audience has allowed me to enter a market that's not, you know, totally dependent on the pop sphere, which I appreciate. That's DJ producer and writer Boima Tucker, a.k.a. Chief Boima. Boima was born and raised in the U.S., but his family is from Sierra Leone. On our 2012 program Diggers and Remixers, we heard Boima's first remix of blind Sierra Leonean musician Sori Kondi. Since then, they've started a project together called the Condi Band. Like the music, you know, for me is 
sonically fits alongside any kind of Afro pop that's coming out today, but at the same time, it fits the narrative of a lot of what the reissue culture is interested in. And so therefore, it's gotten attention in that world. With African music, it's not only old stuff, stuff that's lesser known also gets attention, right? And I think Sori Kondi is really somebody who's this virtuosic talent that was kind of unknown. And my relationship with him about bringing him out of, you know, helping expose him to a wider audience fits within this same reissue type story, even though he's a contemporary artist. You know, it's kind of like a, a subconscious strategy that I just lucked into, but now definitely kind of rolling with. Hmm, there is some irony to this, because Boima has often been on the front lines of discussions of colonial narratives in the African vinyl reissue market. Well, I've, I will preface this with I've gotten in trouble on speaking on this in the past. <laughs> so I, I just want to make it clear and maybe like me talking will help people see that I'm not attacking anybody. But obviously we're based in a history and we're based in a history that has a, a unequal relation between the global south and the global north. Right. And the global north's interest in Africa has always been of these stories of poverty war and or of, you know, uplifting, you know, renewal. And I don't think people realize as they're consuming this stuff, they realize how one-sided the conversation is. Boima notes that although Western tastes for African music do change and evolve, in general, the narratives stay the same. The reissue culture has kind of lost interest in the African funk side a little bit, and they're getting more into the diversity in their selections. But the narrative, I think, is still driving of rareness, where it's like diamonds from Angola, diamonds from Sierra Leone. There's the literal meaning, and then there's like the, the rareness meaning behind the music and the culture. You know, I do worry that there is some stereotyping going on, but at the same time, the stories that are being told are good to get out there as long as there is a complete picture. Um, I was just wondering, do you think that it changes the power dynamics and it, it's important to have people of African descent involved in this industry? 100% yes, but with caveats. I think that, um, you know, like the, in any kind of situation, you're going to have a power imbalance, like social issues. Obviously, I'm born and raised in America. I am of mixed race back in Sierra Leone. You know, my family comes from a different class than Sorry Kondi. And so there is a definite things to watch out for. But in terms of global power dynamics, I think it is important that people that are from the cultures and the countries that are being represented are involved in the process because it is an issue for representation and it is an issue for empowerment. Because myself, I'm always going to be investing back into Africans, the African diaspora, and specifically Sierra Leone at every chance I can. For somebody who's not invested in Sierra Leone, they can just do one thing and then they're going to move on to the next country because it's more of a market decision. For me, it's more based on empowerment and it's something that's really important to me as an artist. And it's the reason why I became an artist in the first place. Yeah, Benji. 
The positive thing about the developments in reissue culture is that it's created an alternative industry to the, the sugary drink kind of sponsored industry um, where people are buying records and able to sustain working class musicians careers and then get into touring circuits and these kind of things that reissue culture vinyl culture for me is the one thing that sustains that and I hope that it sticks around at least until we can figure out how to give value back to music and take it away from the tech companies we'll leave it on that positive note Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and from PRX affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Womex, the showcase, seminar, and trade fair for world and roots music, October 19th to the 23rd in Lisbon, Portugal. More info at womex.com. Thanks to Nenim Iwebuke, Sarah El Harak, Kazim Akin Pelu, and Joe for their help with this program. Visit afropop.org for a full playlist of the music from the show, in-depth interviews, and exclusive DJ mixes. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Alejandro Van Zandt Escobar and Morgan Green Street. And join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Stephanie Lebeau. Benninger and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Mukwai Wabei Siolwe. And I'm Georges Collinet. Bench.